Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with events of violence that may be disturbing to some. This episode features graphic depictions of violence against children. Listener discretion is advised. Mayhem at the Boston Marathon left three dead and more than 260 wounded. A community would come together to support one another. But the violence wasn't yet over, and on day four of the investigation, the city would once again be gripped with fear. This is Method and Madness, Episode 15, The Boston Marathon Bombing, Part 2. I'm your host, Dawn Gandhi. The body was dismembered. A ransom note was discovered. Hikers stumbled upon the nude body of a local... Police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call from... The victim said she was stalked for five years. Held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. Method. And madness. Think of your friends, the people you spend time with, those that you choose to surround yourself with. What would you say about them if asked? How would you describe someone in your close circle? What would you say if while watching the news, a photo of your friend popped up on the screen? Your friend is wanted for questioning by the FBI in connection with a deadly terrorist attack. What would you do? Would you turn them in or help them out? Let's dive in. In the previous episode, Boston was under attack, and the United States, the world, were all paying attention. Newscasts that night showed terrifying images of destruction, fear, and death on Boylston Street, near the finish line of the annual marathon. It was just this huge pile of smoke, and then it sounded like a huge cannon went off, and then it, another one just happened right across from us, and it... it It was just this huge huge explosion, and there was just debris everywhere. A big, huge explosion while we were having lunch, and everybody ran for the doors and windows, and we were sheltered under tables. When it hit the elevator, the elevator shook the whole building. It was quite a blast. Two of them scared the hell out of us. These explosions occurred 50 to 100 yards apart, and uh, each scene... resulted in multiple uh, casualties. Explosion looked like it was right outside the Marathon Sports, you know, right by the finish line there, or the building next to it. We have seen at least uh, six people come in. You can see some of the people coming in on stretchers. They've got that, that shiny foil uh, wrapped around them. Uh, some of them, I suspect, are runners. Some of them may have just been uh, uh, bystanders. We don't really know because this all happened close to the medical tent. I mean, you know they have those, those foil wraps. Many, many people injured, and those injuries are severe. Uh, there was a lot of blood left at the scene. Uh, we helped uh, localities. We put, we're picking them up, uh, putting pressure on wounds. Um, a lot of people were hurt. We just threw them, ran as fast as we could down here to get blood. They were banged up bad. Uh, severe lacerations, uh, amputees, um, a lot of shrapnel. You know, they were pretty big explosions. During the first few days of the investigation, there were reports of incorrect information spreading as well, as can happen with any significant news event accompanied by a large investigation and a manhunt. False reports, rumors, these included more explosives being found that hadn't exploded, a fire at a local library that was said to be connected, 
reports of Boston PD shutting down cell phone towers so that nothing could be detonated via a device, arrests that didn't happen. And by Wednesday, the New York Post had printed their issue with a picture of two men on the cover who they claimed were suspects. They were not. So what's with all the blunders made by the media? Is this part of the battle to be the first to report on breaking news, the competition to be the channel everyone is turned to and tuning into? Does that mean less vetting and less verifying that information is correct? Meanwhile, the very real truth of the tragedies were the families and friends learning of the deaths of Crystal Campbell, Lu Lingzi, and Martin Richard. Eventually, Autopsies were done for the three victims, the results so disturbing that I will not be sharing. Martin's sister, seven-year-old Jane, had to have a leg amputated, and both of their parents were significantly injured. Vigils and memorials were being held around Boston and around the world to honor the victims of the Boston bombing. That week, President Obama attended an interfaith service in Boston and visited the hospitals with the First Lady. The injured were fighting for their lives, with some of them coming to terms with the loss of an extremity, as 16 people lost legs. The city was on lockdown, with some transit stops being shut down, planes grounded out of Boston temporarily. The Boston Symphony Orchestra had its event that Monday night canceled, and the Celtics game the next day was called off. Boston PD encouraged residents to stay home. What was next? Were there more planned attacks? New York City had dispatched its counterterrorism units, and Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles were on high alert. Nobody had come forward yet, not an individual nor a group, to claim responsibility for the bombing. People were angry. Witnesses had seen horrors that nobody should see, the faces of the deceased haunting them at night and for the years to come. But despite the tragedy and the violence, the hashtag Boston Strong began trending on social media. The people of the city were coming together to stand up against the terrorism, to show that they weren't going to back down, and to help the investigation and give back in support of those affected by the bombing. We always see these headlines like, Worst Act of Terror Since 9-11, Worst School Shooting Since Parkland, Worst Mass Shooting Than the One We Had Last Week. I understand that these headlines sell, and in a way, they give a sense of the impact when comparing them to other events. But do these headlines give the next person their motivation to be the next big thing? Scientific studies have shown that mass shooters sometimes share characteristics that indicate they are fame-seeking. But can the same thing be said about bombers? What traits do bombers share, and are there ways of predicting future behaviors? So we know, unfortunately, that the United States is not immune to bombings. Unabomber Ted Kaczynski sent a wave of terror in the form of mail bombs from 1978 until his capture in 1996. His targeted victims were those representing universities and airlines and resulted in 23 people injured and three dead. Now, an American, Kaczynski was motivated by what he considered the detriment to society, growing technological advances. It was ultimately his brother David that brought the Unabomber down. 
David recognized the writing style of the Unabomber's now infamous manifesto that had been published in the Washington Post, a decision made by the FBI and Janet Reno. They had hoped someone would recognize the writings. Kaczynski was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. In 1993, a 1,200-pound bomb exploded underneath the World Trade Center in New York City. Six people were killed and more than 1,000 injured as a result of the bomb located inside a rider truck parked in an underground garage. Six Middle Eastern terrorists were arrested and convicted after co-conspirator Mohammed Salameh reported the rider truck stolen to the rental agency and arrived at their office to receive his deposit back. He was arrested by agents who were there waiting for him. They had found the truck's VIN number in the rubble after the explosion. The motive behind the 1993 bombing was revenge for U.S. support for Israel against Palestine, and the intent was to have one of the Twin Towers topple and knock down the other. In 1995, a bomb devastated a federal building in Oklahoma City, incinerating dozens of cars and damaging over 300 buildings in the proximity. Timothy McVeigh, a 26-year-old American, white supremacist, and Gulf War veteran, had parked a rental truck on the street which contained a bomb made out of fertilizer, diesel fuel, and assorted chemicals that he and co-conspirator Terry Nichols had made at a campground. The result was extremely lethal. A third of the building was destroyed, leaving 168 people dead. 19 of them children, and more than 680 injured. McVeigh and Nichols were sending a message that they were angry with the result of the Ruby Ridge standoff and the Waco siege. McVeigh was captured when a sketch drawing of him was circulated using a description provided by the Ryder rental truck employee. Now, that truck, too, was tracked down by the VIN number that was found in the debris. McVeigh was sentenced to death and swiftly executed in 2001. Nichols was convicted and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Unabomber Ted Kaczynski was an outlier in the sense that he was not a part of a group or religion. In fact, Kaczynski has been formally diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, unlike his peers. But what did these bombers all have in common? Would we say they are fame seekers? Not necessarily, as the evidence shows that other than insistence on having his manifesto published, Kaczynski went to great lengths to remain anonymous, even throwing in red herrings to, you know, throw off the investigation. But what else could be said about terrorism and the psychology behind the terrorists themselves? Forensic psychologist and professor at University of South Florida, Randy Borum, published The Psychology of Terrorism, collaborating with other psychologists to come up with theories to understand the causes and motives behind terrorist behavior. Some key findings in this study were that there really is no one terrorist profile or one-size-fits-all situation. Terrorists are not generally considered psychopaths, nor are there specific personalities or life experiences that can predict who will be a terrorist or why a terrorist came to be. What is a recurring theme is perceived injustice and a need for identity and belonging. This tends to go hand in hand with humiliation and abuse, according to this study, and 
those are considered markers of vulnerability. Ideology is crucial when it comes to terrorism, and there are three characteristics to look for. A set of beliefs that guide and justify a series of behavioral mandates, beliefs that are never broken or dishonored or questioned, and finally, they must be goal-oriented. And important as well is not all extremists are terrorists, while most terrorists are extremists. Now, what these bombers I've mentioned, from the Unabomber to McVeigh, what they all had in common was clear. They were each on their own mission, a mission with a message. And falling right in line with their predecessors, the Boston bombers' message would soon be decoded. FBI and local law enforcement considered that those responsible for the bombing may also be recovering in the hospitals, had they been injured as well. The area hospitals were secured, with agents standing guard ensuring that no victims left without being questioned and looked into. And, as mentioned in the previous episode, law enforcement were gathering physical evidence from the crime scene on Boylston Street. With all of the cell phones that people left behind, there were concerns that any of those devices could be detonators for other bombs. There were purses, bags, and other personal items left behind that police and FBI had to collect and carefully look at in case they, too, held an explosive device. Agents were busy reviewing video surveillance recovered from businesses and the photos and videos captured by those present at the race on April 15th. FBI agent Anthony Imel was leading the team looking at all of the surveillance videos and still photos collected from the moments up to, during, and after the bombing. Quite simply, he advised his team to look for anyone who, after the explosions occurred, didn't look surprised. It was a grueling task. Agents watching the videos found it hard to get past the devastation unfolding before their eyes and rewatched the footage over and over again to make sure they weren't missing anything. By day three of the investigation, something of note had been discovered. Agents found in one of the still images that a spectator had captured the image of a man near the site of the second explosion, watching the crowd before the first explosion occurred. He was standing right behind eight-year-old victim Martin Richard, and at his feet appeared to be a bag right where the bomb would have been. Using this photo, investigators were able to compare the image and timestamp to the security camera footage, including 36 cameras that had been rolling at Whiskey Steakhouse on Boylston Street. And they found that the man appeared to drop the backpack near a garbage can. Moments later, the first explosion blasted and the man looked in the opposite direction. While everyone else was reacting, he was not. He then walked off and shortly after, the second explosion occurred. FBI agent Kevin Swindon described this as the aha moment where the realization set in that this dropped bag must have contained the bomb. Agents were able to track the steps that this man had made prior to the explosions, all through surveillance and cell phone video and photos, and noted that he seemed to be accompanied by another man. In the minutes before the explosions, the two men walked through the crowds of spectators, and what made them stand out was that they were each carrying backpacks, but after the explosions, they were both seen leaving the scene 
without their backpacks. On the evening of April 18th, the FBI released the photos and clips of surveillance videos to the public, hoping somebody would recognize them. Suspect 1, as he was referred to, was described as wearing a black hat and carrying a backpack. Suspect 2, as he was referred to, was described as walking behind Suspect 1 in a white hat, turned backwards, also carrying a backpack. The videos and photos created a timeline of events. Agents scrutinized each frame of every photo and video received. 13 minutes before the first explosion, at 2.37 p.m., the pair were seen walking in front of Whiskey's Steakhouse on Boylston Street with their backpacks on. At 2.40 p.m., 10 minutes before the first explosion, both suspects were standing together in front of Back Bay Social Club on Boylston Street looking out at the runners. Moments later, the suspect in the black hat walked away and was seen in front of Marathon Sports. However, he was not seen on video dropping his backpack. This is the scene where Crystal Campbell was killed. The suspect in the white hat was seen slowly sliding his backpack off his shoulders and dropping it to the ground right in front of the Forum restaurant. This is where Martin Richard and Lu Lingzi were killed. At 2.48, two minutes before the first explosion, the suspect in the white hat was captured on video talking on a cell phone. This could be a crucial clue. Law enforcement used the timestamp of the video to pull cell phone records to see who was using a cell phone in the area at that time and who were they talking to. FBI agent Richard DeLaurier held a press conference that Thursday around 5.30 p.m. when the photos were released and urged the public not to approach the suspects if seen and not to share any other photos that were not released by law enforcement and that if anyone had any information, they were to contact the authorities. But despite that warning, a witch hunt online ensued. Users on Reddit and 4chan began talking and posting their theories on who the bombers were based on the released photos. One Reddit user created a subreddit to offer a place for crowdsourcing, an environment where large groups of people can meet to gather information. Thousands of people joined the sub to help solve the case, and one user mentioned that suspect number two resembled a Brown University student who had been missing since March. This picked up a lot of speed as the unsubstantiated rumor spread like wildfire. 22-year-old Sunil Tripathi's name began trending on social media sites as users were sharing their opinions on how his walk resembled suspect two's walk and how his complexion and hair were similar. Now, Sunil's family had taken to social media themselves to help find their missing loved one when he had gone missing in March. They never dreamed that their efforts would turn to baseless accusations and drag Sunil's name in the dirt. Before they knew it, Sunil's picture was being posted all over the internet, side by side with Suspect 2's blurry image. The family was being badgered with questions. Sunil's sister, Sanjita, found herself being asked, how could you cover for your brother? In a sad twist, Sunil was found days later. His body was discovered on April 23rd. He had died by suicide weeks earlier and had nothing to do with the marathon bombing. While fingers were pointing and families found themselves defending the names of their loved ones, 
Jeff Bowman, whose personal story was highlighted in the previous episode, was waking up from surgery. You'll remember that Jeff was right next to the site of the first explosion and had lost both legs, but was helped by stranger Carlos Arredondo. After Jeff underwent surgery that night to have his legs amputated above the knees, he woke up in the hospital bed and asked for a pen. He wrote down, quote, bag, saw the guy, looked right at me. While watching the runners, Jeff had been bumped into, and when he turned, he made eye contact with suspect number one and was able to give a description of the man to the police, which confirmed their suspicions that it was the man in the black hat. He thought something about the guy seemed off, as he was the only person there that didn't appear to be having a good time. And someone else thought that suspect number two looked awfully familiar, that he resembled a close friend, and turned out he was right. That evening, minutes after the photos were released, 19-year-old UMass student Diaz Kadarbaev texted his friend Johar Sarnayev, who looked just like suspect number two in the white hat, and asked him if he saw the news and if he saw himself there. Johar replied, quote, I saw the news. Better not text me, my friend. LOL. A moment later, Diaz received another text from him that said, quote, if you want, you can go to my room and take what's there. He signed off with the Arabic Salam Aleikum, which means peace be unto you. Diaz reflected on how he had hung out with Johar the day before and noticed his friend's longer, shaggy hair was suddenly cut shorter. That night, Johar texted two other friends and said, if you need something from my room, take it. Diaz and the two other 19-year-olds, Asmat Tasakayov and Robel Filippos, went to Johar's dorm room, where they were let in by his roommate. Johar was not there. Inside, Diaz showed his friends a text from Johar that read, quote, I'm about to leave. If you need something in my room, take it. Inside, they discovered a backpack with emptied fireworks and thought it best to get rid of so that their friend wouldn't get in trouble. They also grabbed Johar's laptop, and that and the backpack were disposed of at Diaz's home. The friends spent the rest of the night watching the news, which only confirmed their suspicions that Johar was a suspect. What they did not do, however, was call the police or the FBI and tell them what they knew. Johar, meanwhile, was feeling the pressure. His face was all over the news and internet. His friends were recognizing him. Now, the FBI were using facial recognition software, and they had a few possible names on their list regarding who the two suspects could be. The suspects were about to out themselves in another violent crime spree that night. A couple of hours after their faces were all over the news and the internet, 19-year-old Johar and his 26-year-old brother Tamerlan Tsarnaev, otherwise known as suspect number one, knew it was time to move. They knew the police were on to them. They were the two suspects, the two men that had carefully and deliberately placed two homemade bombs near the finish line of the marathon, knowing how catastrophic their actions would be, fully aware that families and children were standing nearby. And here's what they had done that week after the explosions leading up to seeing their faces on TV. 
20 minutes after the blasts, at 3.12 p.m., the afternoon of Monday, April 15th, Johar and Tamerlan went to Whole Foods, where Johar went inside to purchase milk for his niece. Just 20 minutes after this act, buying milk, he left Whole Foods and returned minutes later to exchange the milk as he had brought the wrong kind. That night, Johar tweeted out, quote, Ain't no love in the heart of the city. Stay safe, people. At 8.55 p.m. Monday night, Johar went to his college campus at UMass Dartmouth and worked out in the gym. A friend watched the news with the pair that night and noted that while watching an elderly man fall over after the explosion, that Tamerlan had laughed. They spent the next few days wondering if they'd get caught. Still, Johar behaved like a typical 19-year-old, watching movies with his friends and smoking pot. And on Thursday, April 18th, while Johar's friends were helping him by disposing of evidence, Johar and Tamerlan were at their apartment in Cambridge. It was 10 p.m. when the pair abruptly stopped eating dinner and decided to leave in a hurry. They left their uneaten food on the table, grabbed five IEDs, a machete, a 9mm handgun, and ammunition. Who were these two? Were they mastermind criminals? How and why had they pulled this off? Tamerlan was born in 1986 and his brother Jahar in 1993 in the Soviet Republic of Kyrgyzstan to parents Anzor and Zubeda, who had big dreams for their children. The family were Muslims and lived in Kyrgyzstan before moving to Dagestan in 2001. In 2002, Johar and his parents moved to the United States where they applied for political asylum and found a home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where they received food stamps and welfare. And the next year, Tamerlan joined them along with his two sisters. In 2009, Tamerlan was arrested for aggravated assault and domestic battery after his then-girlfriend called 911 on him. He was never formally charged as the case lacked evidence for trial. On September 11, 2012, Johar became a U.S. citizen and started attending University of Massachusetts Dartmouth while his brother, an amateur boxer, never became a citizen and was a college dropout. He and his parents had hoped that their move to the U.S. would result in Tamerlan boxing for the U.S. Olympics. But Tamerlan barely held down a job and instead sold drugs and became bitter and angry. Tamerlan then met his wife, Catherine Russell, who had dropped out of college and married him in 2010. The couple had a baby girl and lived together in Cambridge. The brothers were said to have extreme Islamic beliefs. While Johar was described by friends as being funny and a popular student at UMass, at home, he had a different side to him. He and Tamerlan spent a lot of their time watching online videos that showed Muslim children being killed by U.S. soldiers. They were attracted to Al-Qaeda publications, and Johar had a digital book about the importance of Muslims not forming an allegiance with any country that invades Muslim lands. In 2011, Russian authorities contacted the FBI in the United States with concerns that Tamerlan had associations with extremists. The FBI looked into it, and Tamerlan was added to a watch list, but ultimately, agents didn't find anything that alarmed them. In late 2011, Russian authorities again contacted agents in the U.S., this time the CIA. But despite these concerns, Tamerlan left the U.S. the next year 
for a six-month trip. It was 2012 when Tamerlan took a trip back to Dagestan, seemingly to find his purpose in what seemed like a life that was going nowhere for him. It was this trip that may have been when Tamerlan became radicalized, seeking out people who accepted him and finding a comfort in Islam. He returned to the U.S. to Massachusetts later that same year. Back in the U.S., while Johar had the outward appearance of a popular college student, the reality was that he was a pot-dealing college failure that was losing his financial aid due to his poor grades and was becoming more and more influenced by his brother. By now, Tamerlan's and Johar's parents were divorced and moved out of the U.S. Investigators think that this was the point where Tamerlan began radicalizing his younger brother. Were the failures of the two brothers causing them to spiral? Were they trying desperately to find their purpose? If we think about the psychology of terrorism and go back to those three characteristics of ideology, can it be said that Tamerlan had a set of beliefs that, to him, justified his behavioral mandates? Were his beliefs never to be broken or questioned, and were they goal-oriented? Tamerlan was going deeper into religion and going to the side of jihad, which, for Muslims, can mean an array of different things. It translates literally to the Arabic meaning of exerted effort, and in the Quran is represented as an exerted effort to change oneself or to physically stand up against oppressors if that's what it comes to. The Quran is very specific about what jihad is and what it isn't. And the possibility is that Tamerlan had found his identity, his sense of belonging with that trip to Dagestan. That his radicalization meant something that most Muslims wouldn't even recognize. That his interpretation of jihad and what he was learning was that it was his duty to right the wrongs against Muslims. His anger toward the American people grew, and he and Johar began to formulate their plan officially in December 2012. They intended on bombing Boston on July 4, 2013. Tamerlan began following a recipe for homemade bombs, a recipe he had downloaded titled Make a Bomb in the Kitchen of Your Mom from an Al-Qaeda article. He started buying components online. In February 2013, he bought 48 mortars containing 8 pounds of explosive powder from a fireworks store in New Hampshire. He then bought a couple of pressure cookers, and finally, he visited a hobby shop and picked up two remote control cars. The remote wires were attached to a shattered Christmas light bulb. The two six-quart pressure cookers were used to make the bombs and were packed with gunpowder, nails, and BB pellets. Turned out, the making of the bombs was easier than expected, and the plan was moved up. Instead of an explosion on the 4th of July, the targeted event would be the Boston Marathon. It would be a heavily crowded event, and since it was held on an American holiday, Patriot's Day, it fit into Tamerlan's agenda. He found any celebration of holidays to be offensive. On March 20th, Johar and Tamerlan practiced shooting at a firing range in New Hampshire, then on April 14th, Tamerlan went to Target and bought two black backpacks to carry and conceal the two homemade bombs. That same day, Johar created a prepaid cell phone account under the name Jahar Sarnai, similar to his own name but spelled differently. 
Finally, on April 15th, the brothers left the apartment in Cambridge, parked a few blocks away from Boylston Street, and with their backpacks loaded, walked toward the finish line, with Jahar following in his brother's footsteps, both literally and figuratively. Now, three days later, the brothers were out fleeing the city they had tried to destroy and had plans to drive south to New York City to make another statement at Times Square. Around 10.15 p.m., Tamerlan and Johar drove a Honda sedan to nearby MIT. There, they approached the patrol car of MIT police officer, 26-year-old Sean Collier, who was there responding to a report of a disturbance. The men opened the door of his cruiser and shot Collier three times in the head and once in his right hand. Next, they tried to take the gun from his holster, but it was locked in, so they fled. Officers responded to the scene between Vassar and Main Streets. Collier, a graduate of Salem State University, where he studied criminal justice, was transported to Massachusetts General, where he was pronounced dead just after 1030. Next, while driving through a neighborhood in Brighton, the men came upon a Mercedes-Benz ML350 that was pulled over on the side of the road, its engine running. Northeastern engineering student Dun Meng, a 26-year-old Chinese male, had pulled his car over to text a friend. Tamerlan and Johar pulled their car behind the Mercedes, and Tamerlan ran up to the SUV and knocked on the passenger side window. Meng, assuming that the man was asking for help or for directions, rolled down the window, and upon doing so, Tamerlan reached his hand in, unlocked the car door, and forced his way inside at gunpoint. He told Meng that he was responsible for the Boston bombing and that he'd just shot an MIT police officer. He and Johar then moved some heavy items from their car into the Mercedes. With Johar in the back seat and Tamerlan in the passenger seat, they ordered Meng to drive them around for a while while they used his ATM card to withdraw money. All the while, Tamerlan had a gun pointed at Meng's head. Tamerlan asked Meng if the car had GPS and if they could get them to New York City. At one point, Tamerlan took over driving with Meng in the passenger seat. Meng's phone was synced to his car, and when his roommate texted him, the sound chimed through the speaker system. There was no way to sneakily reply in SOS, so he told the brothers what the text said. His roommate was worried about where he was, as it was dangerous outside currently. Jahar looked up Mandarin to English translations on his phone and attempted to come up with a response that Meng could use as a reply to his roommate. Before a reply could be sent, Meng's phone rang. Another roommate was calling him. Now, Tamerlan, his gun pointed at Meng's head, told the man to answer, but if he spoke one word of Chinese, he'd be dead. Meng answered the call and spoke in English briefly, which surprised his roommate, and then Meng quickly ended the call. About an hour into this ordeal, they stopped at a Shell gas station in Cambridge and Jahar went to purchase some snacks. Meng, who had spent the entire terrifying hour thinking of an escape, used this opportunity. Tamerlan was busy with the SUV's GPS system. Meng took a deep breath, counted to four, and opened the passenger door, with Tamerlan trying to grab at him. Meng was able to break free and ran to a different gas station nearby where he told the cashier inside that he had been hijacked by the Boston bombers and needed to call 911. 
This encounter was captured on surveillance, a frantic man crouching on the floor behind the counter to talk to the 911 dispatcher. Meanwhile, on the surveillance video of the other gas station, Jahar is inside, about to purchase snacks when his brother comes in and they hurriedly leave together in the stolen Mercedes. When Boston PD arrived to speak with Dunmang at the gas station, he told them everything that had happened and how the two men told him they were responsible for the bombings and that they had killed a man in Cambridge. And then he told them something promising. He said, quote, My car has a special Mercedes GPS tracking device. You can follow it. And follow it they did. Police tracked the Mercedes to 87 Dexter Street in Watertown. The first to respond was Officer Joseph Reynolds, and it was after midnight when a Mercedes SUV came slowly toward him from the opposite direction. As Officer Reynolds passed the car, he locked eyes with the driver, pulled a UE, and followed the Mercedes as it made a left onto Laurel Street, where it stopped in the middle of the road. Moments later, Tamerlan emerged from the SUV and began firing a gun at Officer Reynolds' cruiser. Reynolds crouched down behind his door and called on his radio for backup that he was being shot at. He exchanged gunfire with Tamerlan, who seemed to have an endless amount of ammo. Soon, other officers responded to the scene. Sergeant John McClellan pulled up and was shot at immediately, the bullet going through his windshield. Officer Richard Donahue was hit by a stray bullet during the battle, severely injuring his thigh, causing a massive loss of blood and cardiac arrest. Then there were the explosions, as both brothers began throwing homemade grenades. There was no way in hell there would be a peaceful surrender. No, the Sarnaev brothers were not going down without a fight. And a fight it was, a full-on shootout with the two suspects throwing their explosives and eventually tossing a cooker into the air that exploded, setting off car alarms and shaking the ground around them. One officer, Dennis Simmons, was seriously injured by one of the devices and died from the wounds he suffered a year later in 2014. He would be considered the Sarnayev brothers' fifth murder victim. This was a residential street, and while explosions and gunfire were lighting up the night, the people inside the homes were hiding their children and peeking out through their blinds. Some took photos, which would later be used at trial. As more and more police showed up, Tamerlan and Jahar continued their violence, with Tamerlan eventually throwing his gun at one of the officers, Jeffrey Pugliese, hitting him in the arm. Officer Pugliese and Tamerlan got into a scuffle, Tamerlan trying to take the officer down and Pugliese trying to apprehend the suspect. Other officers ran to assist while Jahar jumped into the Mercedes SUV and started to drive away. While officers were attempting to arrest Tamerlan, they had him on the ground when the revving of an engine started getting closer. They looked up and Jahar had turned the Mercedes SUV around and was heading right at them. The officers dashed out of the way and pulled Tamerlan about a foot out of the path of the car, but it was too late. Jahar accelerated and drove right past the officers. As they looked up, they saw the taillights of the SUV go up and then down as they realized that Tamerlan had been run over and dragged down the road. Johar had run over his older brother. Next, 
on the conclusion of the Boston Marathon bombing, another massive manhunt as Johar Sarnayev runs off into the night and the city of Boston shelters in place. And finally, a trial and justice for the people of Boston and why Johar Sarnayev made headlines in 2021. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. This is an independent podcast, so if you like it, go ahead and leave a five-star review. It really does help. You can find me on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. If you have suggestions for future episodes or just want to say hi, please email me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741.